Good morning, good evening, and good day. You're listening to Drama Buds, an anima podcast. So hello everyone, welcome to today's episode of Drama Buds. Uh, remember last year, I think in my year-end awards, or my Q4 recap, where I was talking about how my 2023 K-drama resolution is to trust my instinct. If I, you know, if I think I'm gonna like a drama, I'll watch it. But if I think I won't, I, I won't even waste my time, you know? Like, just trusting that gut feeling. And I said that because I thought that my intuition really was getting better. I knew my tastes more. I knew what I liked, what I didn't like, what I was willing to, you know, put up with. And, you know, I'd rather just not waste my time on things that I already have the gut feeling that I won't like it. Or, or, is this just confirmation bias? You come into a drama expecting that you won't like it, and so you look for things to nitpick about it, and then, yeah, you say, oh, yeah, I was right. My intuition was right. I really wouldn't like it. Or you come into a drama thinking, oh, this is for me. I'm going to love this. And then you, you know, the rose-tinted glasses of, yeah, yeah, all I see are the good things. Sometimes I, I think that's all that it is. You know, just confirming what I expected I would feel about these dramas. Anyway, why am I talking about all of this? It's because Call It Love, our drama of the day, I had a feeling that I would like this. I don't know something about the teasers. I didn't know anything about the writer or director or anything. But I just had this feeling that it would be for me. And somehow, I proved myself right once again. Okay, so basic details. Call It Love is written by a rookie writer. Same director as The Secret Life of My Secretary. Interestingly, stars Kim Yong Kwang. And it stars Lee Song Kyung, who I've seen in Doctor Romantic 2. And Kim Yong Kwang, who I've seen as the very uh, forgettable second lead in Pinocchio. So Call It Love is about a woman who seeks revenge on her father's mistress by going after her son. But she discovers that both of their lives have been negatively impacted by their parents' affairs. And obviously, they fall in love and heal and positively change each other's lives. But a lot has to happen before we get there. Moving on to the plot and characters. First, we have Shimuju, played by Lee Song Kyung. She's the middle child of three siblings, and she's the only one who witnessed her father's affair firsthand. She's the one you count on the most, even if she's not the eldest, the one who will step in and solve people's problems for them. And she's always taking care of everyone and making sure they're living their lives right, whatever that means. If that means paying for her younger brother's cram school so that he can study to be a civil servant, forcing him into it, even if it's pretty clear that he doesn't want to do it, she'll do it because that's what he's supposed to do to live like a good, upright, stable life. Uju's life is all about stability, about keeping things together, even if she personally 
doesn't look like she has achieved much with her own life. And, you know, instead of displaying it as martyrdom, as like, I am the saint of this family, she doesn't hide that she's, you know, unhappy and she's grumpy about it. And all that stability, everything she's been working so hard to maintain, uh, falls apart when her father dies. And, you know, she decides to make a scene in her father's funeral to embarrass him uh, and embarrass his mistress. But, you know, instead, his mistress says that actually the house you're living in that you think your father left to you is mine now, according to his will. And she kicks them out. And then Uju overhears that their house was sold by the mistress to fund the company of her son. And so Uju decides to work for the son's company and get revenge on him by destroying his company. Uh, I will talk about <laughs> how uh, silly this plot is, but okay. And Uju's journey is, I mean, obviously, instead of getting revenge... She needs to heal. Like, you need to heal your inner child, girl. Because the only person who is really hurting in this situation is her. And it's all about, you know, hurting others will not heal the pain that you have experienced because of them. And I'm so sorry to make it about my liberation notes once more. But Yomi Jong was right, okay? Maybe you are exhausted and unhappy because you decided to be someone who only exists to prove how terrible someone else is. Like you decided that you will carry this burden with you forever, that someone ruined your life and you want to ruin their life back. You know, maybe she was right about that. And Uju is, yeah, the perfect example of that. Next, we have Han Dong Jin played by Kim Yong Kwang. So he's the mistress's son and he has witnessed his mother jumping from one man to another. Compared to Uju's like very firm role and relationship with her family, he doesn't have that. His mother has never acted like a mother to him and he doesn't have a stable father figure, obviously. Dongjin has never had a say in his mother's relationships. You know, he's never been able to say that, you know, why don't you just stay with this guy so that I can grow up with a stable family. And as an adult, that's kind of carried over to him being a pushover who accommodates everything and everyone. On the outside, he looks like someone who has it all together. He is the co-CEO of a company. He lives in this nice high-rise condo. He even had a long-term relationship with someone. But actually, internally, he's not entirely stable. He doesn't have any principles or goals or anything he's fighting for, not even himself. Starting that company wasn't his decision. He was just influenced by his friend, his co-CEO. His apartment looks nice, you know, from the outside of the building. But when you go inside, it's bare. It's empty. He sleeps in a tent. And I love, I love the symbolism of, you know, Uju fighting for her family home. Meanwhile, we have Dongjin sleeping in a tent. Like, ugh. The symbolism of it, I'll get into that later. What else? He allowed his girlfriend to cheat on him and leave him because he couldn't really imagine settling down with her since he considers, I don't know, he said he considers his mother as his weakness. And I think in general, he just has no concept of family, no concept of settling down and living a happy, peaceful life. And that's why, you know, he lives in a tent because all you do is build it up and then tear it all down. And that's kind of how he's been living his life for so long. And so Dongjin's journey is obviously, you know, learning to stand up for himself and to choose himself despite his mother's continued presence in his life. 
And he needs to believe that he deserves happiness in a stable life that he lives for himself and not others. I personally feel like I have a better grasp of Uju and her character and, you know, her relation to the plot because in many ways, Dongjin is kind of a victim of circumstance. A lot of things just happen to him. People are just terrible to him. And it's Uju who kind of steps in and fixes things, you know, as is her character. So even that's consistent. I truly think that it's so silly that this is technically a revenge drama. Except from the very beginning, you kind of know that it's not about revenge, right? It's not about her getting revenge in a satisfying way. From the very beginning, it's ridiculous that Uju goes to her father's funeral to make a scene. As if that does anything. Like, girl, he's dead. Who are you bringing shame and embarrassment to at this point? Just yourself. And then working at Dongjin's company. What does that actually achieve? How exactly does she plan on ruining his company? Why does she think that stalking him and following him home very terribly, by the way, zero stealth, uh, not one on stealth, why would you think that that is a good idea? The first part of the plot focuses on a bit of you know, corporate espionage and competition where Dongjin's former boss uh, sabotages the camping fair that he's planning by getting suppliers from him and poaching his employees until his company has like five employees max. And Uju, for some reason, implicates herself in that by telling the the key traitor in, in Dongjin's company to do your best in ruining him, in ruining Han Dongjin. Girl, why would you do that? Why would you put yourself in that situation? Um, once again, a lot of silly stuff. But, but, uh, slowly, she realizes that she completely misunderstood him as a person, obviously. And he's such a pushover that he would let his employee leak company files and he would let someone take a swing at him without defending himself. Like, he just stands there and takes it. And is that the kind of person who would willingly take ill-gotten wealth from his mother to further his own life and his own career and agenda? I don't think so. The more serious and plotty part of the show, I keep saying, is laughable. Okay, it's laughable. It... I hate making this joke, but it's like saying we have my mister at home and then the my mister at home is this. And I'm sorry to make that comparison. I know a lot of people have heard it already because, you know, there's corporate espionage and then the grumpy loner temp worker is secretly here to sabotage the boss. But as she, you know, stalks him and learns more about him, she learns that he's a pitiful person and she empathizes with him and they, you know, heal through their relationships and make their lives better. Except it's actually romantic this time. <laughs> I held on to this show because I sort of knew that this was going to be about healing. It's not about revenge. I know it. And I just wanted to see how they were going to make it happen.
Now, there were many aspects of this show that I was unsure of. You know, even if I was generally enjoying it, there were some aspects that made me mm, really cautious of where this show was headed. Like, of course, this plot, I keep making fun of it. How long will we stay on this silly corporate espionage thing? When will Uju actually act on her her understanding of Dongjin, right? When will she actually do something about this feeling that he's not the bad person in this situation? When will they both realize that they're changing each other for the better and properly fall in love uh, with Dongjin's ex, Minyong? She comes back and she expects that Dongjin would accept her again, but then she notices that there's something going on with him and with Uju. Is she going to be a bitchy ex-girlfriend? Is that what we're going to do with her character? And are they going to be in a love triangle or something? And also, what they were doing with her constantly binge drinking night after night out of guilt. They're going to address this as alcoholism, right? She's not just drinking to show that she's sad or that she's guilty, right? They're not contributing to the very, very nonchalant depiction of excessive drinking that most K-dramas are guilty of. Like, it's just part of the culture. Mm, I think that's alcoholism, you know? So is it just going to be a funny, quirky thing that she does? Or are we actually going to address that this is a problem? We also have Uju's older sister, Hesong, who is a bit, I guess, a bit ditzy, right? And caught up with finding a new boyfriend after she discovered that she was the third party in someone else's relationship, which... Like, really triggered some deep, deep trauma. You know, after her family was torn apart by by her father having an affair and then knowing that she is the third party. Oh, oh God, that, that hurts. Well, my question was, there's more to this, right? This isn't just some filler storyline about her navigating her dating life again, but now with a much younger guy. Like, it's not going to be just this, right? And then we have Uju's best friend, Jun. He's the only person who knows about Dongjin, about his whole history, about the mistress and Uju working for him to get revenge on him. I was just so concerned. Like, there won't be a love triangle, right? He won't be secretly in love with his best friend and, you know, wanting her to stay away from this guy who she, you know, might ruin his life and might ruin her life as well. Like, mm, we're not doing this, right? But the key, the key to all of this, my key learning for this uh, show is trust the process, okay? These questions and the possible issues, they're all addressed in their own time, at the right time. <laughs> there wasn't any aspect, I think, that I was dissatisfied with, you know, where the story went. And I'm glad that they weren't just characters who I thought, you know, would serve a purpose, like the bitchy ex-girlfriend or the second lead best friend or, you know, not just characters who would go through this meaningless separate journey just to fill up time, like a filler side story. So, thank God that's not what happened here. It's actually very well-paced for what it is, which is important because it is, in fact, a very slow melodrama. <laughs>
Now, before we get into all of this that I want to talk about, what is a romance melodrama and why do I have to define it? Because, of course, people have different ideas of what they consider to be a melodrama. But for me, specifically, a romance melodrama, it's a story where two people can't be together for insert reasons here. As in capital R, reasons, okay? Uh, For example, in One Spring Night, She is in a long-term relationship that people expect she'll get married to him already, even though it's a very boring and loveless uh, relationship. And he's a single father who, you know, is, is kind of giving up on finding love because it's such a big stigma to to have a child, especially for someone of his age. Uh, something in the rain. I didn't watch this, but yeah, age gap. She's an older woman and they're like childhood friends. So yeah, I'm sure there's social stigma against that. Secret love affair. Oh my God. She is a much older woman. She's a, I think she was like a director in the, in some foundation or something, like a frustrated piano player. And he is like in his 20s and he's no one and he's like some sort of prodigy and they bond over their passion for music and also passion for each other. So yeah, forbidden love. There's a lot of forbidden love here. Interesting to note, these three I mentioned have the same director, An Pansok. Please, please come back, An Pansok. Please, I'm begging, I'm begging you to come back. But what's most important about these uh, these three dramas is that there is just this intense chemistry and intimacy, which I think is also very crucial for melodramas. Okay, I've talked about forbidden love. That's not the only problem they could deal with. Sometimes they can't be together for you know individual things, their individual journeys, or self-imposed obstacles. For example, do you like Brahms? They're both kind of second leads in their own love triangles, and... They've gotten so used to being overlooked that they can't imagine that something would work out with them, with with each other. I feel like that's inaccurate. It's a lot more layered than that, but I'm focusing solely on the romance aspect. Chocolate and Just Between Lovers, I feel like they're both rooted in this big dramatic incident that happened to them as children. And I don't know exactly, for both of these dramas, it's very murky now, my memory of them. But, you know, that trauma sacked them with a lot of guilt. Like maybe someone they loved died in that accident. Or it made their lives so difficult that they became very jaded and focused on just themselves and survival. So they never had the time to really think about falling in love and being vulnerable with someone. But of course, they meet someone who was coincidentally affected by the same uh, traumatic childhood incident. And yeah, learn to be vulnerable with someone and learn to heal and find love. The interest of love, I dropped this, but self-imposed obstacles really of believing that I should date or fall in love or marry within my social class. And they should fall in love within their social class. Like we have our places in society. We don't mix. There is no social mobility here. Not even in love. I think that's what the entire show was trying to say. Anyway, so lots of examples, right? You get it. You get the kind of show that I'm talking about. Now, there will always be people who call romantic mellows boring. That they're so unnecessarily gloomy. That if they just communicate and get over their little hang-ups, there's literally nothing stopping them from being together. But a good romantic mellow will make you understand why they're life experiences 
have turned them into who they are and why these obstacles feel so huge and impossible to overcome to them. To you, maybe you can deal with, you know, societal stigma or whatever, but to them, they can't deal with it. Also, also, a good romantic melodrama will make you root for this romance despite everything. Whether it's because you believe that the love and happiness they'll obtain by being with each other is completely worth it, or sometimes it's just sheer chemistry, okay? The chemistry is palpable and you understand why they can't help but fall in love or get into this relationship. Call it love just ticks every one of those boxes. It leans a bit more on the forbidden love aspect towards the end when Uju's family finds out about Dongjin's whole, you know, whole family tree. <laughs> but in the build-up, it was more rooted in their personal issues, right? And their need for individual healing. You know exactly how they ended up like that. And it absolutely makes sense why they carry those, um, those childhood traumas with them until now, until they're adults. And, you know, looking at these characters individually, even if Uju was supposedly seeking revenge and she wanted to hurt others as much as she's been hurt, she is still inherently a good person who deserves this love. And Dongjin, we know, is a good person who deserves this love. They're both good people who deserve to heal from the wounds that have been following them all their lives. And watching that journey was absolutely worth it. So that's it for me today. Overall, Call It Love was a very satisfying ride. Great acting for both leads, great chemistry. They really, really carried the role so well. <laughs> I'm sure you've seen the pink filter and it's, it's really not that bad. You get used to it after a while. And the cinematography itself behind or under the pink filter, it's actually stellar and very, very intentional. I love the OST, specifically Flower by Roy Kim, that first one I played. So good, so good. I was definitely more engaged and in love with the middle episodes. It kind of fizzled out towards the end when Uju's family found out about Dongjin and everything. And it was just the typical, you know, we can't be together because of other people. Like It, it leaned very heavily on the forbidden love aspect when her family was already kind of like they were good with the situation it was all good already so why didn't you just end up together already but hey it's fine it, it's it's actually fine and most importantly this brought back my love for melodramas it's been a while since i watched just a pure romantic melodrama the romance mellow is not dead guys it's not dead uh i might watch secret love affair now because I'm just, I need something sizzling, you know? I'll think about it. I'll think about it. Anyway, rating for Cult Love is a solid 8.5 out of 10. I would recommend this to people easily if they're looking for exactly what this is. So yeah, I think that's it for me today. Reminder, there is a, a Discord channel if you ever want to come hop in and talk about K-dramas or anything really. And yeah, that's it for me today. Thank you so much for listening and I will see you soon. 
Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to leave a comment, like, subscribe, follow, and tell me what you thought about today's episode. See you soon!